Good evening. You are listening to The Truth Tank, and I am your host, The Tank. If this is your first time here, a big welcome. If you're a repeat listener, welcome back. Apologies for not getting an episode out in December. As you can imagine, December is a pretty hectic month with Christmas and the holidays and New Year and all that shit. And I might have missed the boat. The research I did for this episode took a lot longer than I thought it was going to. So Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, everyone. And what better way to kick off the new year than with a brand new episode. 2022, 2021's in the review, and COVID's still going on. i got a feeling that COVID is probably going to be around for a little while longer. I think we've got another two to three years of this to look forward to before it finally leaves the news cycle for good. I hope I'm wrong, but the way things have been going lately, I wouldn't be surprised if it lasted a lot longer than that. So how was your Christmas and New Year, everyone? Everyone had a good time catching up with friends and family? Everyone make a start on their New Year's resolutions. My New Year's resolution is to get more episodes produced. So hopefully it doesn't take as long as it has been to research and record and produce a show, but I'm obsessed with details, as you probably gathered already. And I like to be very thorough when researching a topic. Got some big plans for 2022. I'm hoping to expand the social media reach, maybe even get some merchandise out before the end of the year, and a couple of other things that are on the back burner, which will hopefully come to light in the next couple of months, time permitting. So before we get into tonight's show, just a quick recap of the last show. On the last show, we had a look at bioweapons again, more specifically the 1800s, the American Civil War, the Union blockades, the Yellow Fever plot, Dr. Blackburn... Quinine and the South's struggles through the war. So if you haven't listened to that, go ahead and download that now. So without further ado, let's get into tonight's show. This is episode 33 of The Truth Tank, A Bioweapons Part 3, The 1900s, The German Sabotage Plots, and Dr. Dilger. been a while since I've recorded or had an episode out. It's a bit weird. The last episode I recorded was November of last year. Fucking hell how the time goes. So it is now the 1900s and bioweapons are more prevalent than ever. The production rate and use of these weapons is disturbingly common in the mindset of the world's leaders and militaries. So much like the later half of the 1800s, it was another history-defining war that brought bioweapons to the forefront of human thought, and as a result, to the battlefields of Europe. Biological warfare in World War I and World War II would finally bring about the eventual restriction and banning over the next century. And unfortunately, it took a hell of a long time to finally ban these weapons. So this is where our story begins, in pre-World War I Germany. By the 20th century, biological warfare reaches a new level of sophistication and cunning. Like we saw in the last show, it is a time where it is very possible to select and manipulate specific viruses and diseases. So unlike previous centuries when you had to rely on whatever physical, biological material you could find, such as 
dead bodies, rabid dog saliva, rotting meat. And you think that bacteria had bred in, or anything that was disgusting enough to stick in a jar and throw at your enemy, you can now manipulate samples of biological material and germs, such as anthrax, glanders, and a whole bunch of other horrible diseases like that. So medical and scientific technology was getting better by the day, and so was the understanding of biological agents and how to use them. The start of the 1900s are pretty quiet. Obviously there's not a hell of a lot happening on the biological weapons front. There's no wars, so there's no need for people to unleash some of the world's worst viruses and parts of human nature. That is until July 28th, 1914, when Austria and Hungary declare war on Serbia after the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Three days later, on the 1st of August, Germany follows Austria and Hungary's lead and declares war on Russia. The Germans paved the way and really are the pioneers in the use of biological warfare in the 20th century. But Germany wasn't the only power researching or developing bioweapons. The US, UK, Russia and parts of Europe were also taking a keen interest in the rapidly changing field of biological warfare. Obviously this wasn't a new, completely new form of warfare. It was just one that was changing at a rapid pace, much faster than biological warfare had advanced throughout history. It's also one that was becoming a lot easier to develop. Weapons became more dangerous and more lethal. They also became easier to use and to find and deploy on the battlefield. You didn't have to fill up a clay pot with spider venom, rabid dog saliva, or shit, and throw it at your enemies anymore. You could just sneak germ samples in a petri dish into your bag, then unleash them at will. It's more complicated than that, but you get what I mean. The samples were becoming readily available and much easier to find, use, and smuggle into other countries. Especially on the battlefield, you could do a lot of damage with a very tiny microscopic organism. So the Germans took it to the next level before anyone else got a chance to. A long time before the Biological Weapons Convention put a stop to bioweapons being used in war, the superpowers of the day, most of the nations that were directly involved in World War I, a majority of which had agreed to and signed the Hague Convention in 1899. The Hague Convention was a series of international treaties held at the Hague in the Netherlands. There was a second convention held in Geneva, which obviously it was called the Geneva Convention, which is still around today, I'm pretty sure. The Geneva Convention has played a part in most wars. It's basically the code of conduct or the set of rules that most nations are to adhere to in times of conflict. The aim of the Hague Convention was to set out the first modern laws of war and war crimes based around international laws. It was based on an earlier set of rules called the Lieber Code, set out by Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War in 1863. Some of the code of conduct outlined was what wasn't acceptable on the battlefield, such as the targeting of civilians and their property, treatment of prisoners of war, the use of hostages and not using people as human shields, no pillaging, no killing of innocents, prisoner exchanges, respect of life, and no assassination or murder of military and civilians in hostile territory. So that one is a bit ironic given how things turned out for Abraham Lincoln and for later on for Archduke Franz Ferdinand. 
So it pretty much paved the way for the modern rules of war and conduct. The main goal of the conventions was to find alternatives to war. Negotiations included disarmament and the proposed creation of an international court system where disputes between nations could be resolved peacefully without the need to go to war through a compulsory arbitration court. The Hague Convention was based on the Libra Code, as I mentioned before, and largely followed its outline. It also mentioned the use of non-humane weapons, such as biological or chemical weapons. But as you could probably have guessed, it failed, both at the Hague and later at the Geneva Convention, because not all nations present could agree to the terms and conditions. The US, UK, Russia, China, France and Persia voted instead for a permanent court of arbitration, but this was vetoed by a few countries, with the court's rejection being led by Germany. A lot of the rules put in place in 1899 are still in place today, like the use of certain types of ammo and bombs in war. It's a bit more complex than that, but you get the gist. So when you look, really look back on history, it's kind of funny how things worked out. All these countries have these great ideas that are all about peace and resolving disputes and conflicts peacefully. But over the course of the 20th century, that's not how a lot of things played out. Especially in the first 50 years of the 20th century, it's pretty much war after war. And it's obviously it's a pattern that continues until this day. So really the lessons learned from these conventions, in theory, were probably a great idea. But in reality, human beings really haven't learned a hell of a lot. We're still doing the same shit we did thousands of years ago. Picking up sticks against your fellow man and beating them down. Fast forwarding a bit, the Second Hague Convention was held in 1907, after Theodore Roosevelt suggested it back in 1904. It was put on hold when Russia and Japan went at it in the same year, which followed up the 1899 convention. So this time around it was more of the same, a lot of talk and not a lot of action. It's pretty much the same as modern day politics, talk a lot of shit, don't do a lot. Politicians back then were pretty much the same as politicians today. The only thing they were really concerned about was their pensions and bank accounts. So a few more additions were made to the rules, mostly to keep up with the changing nature of military technology. Which doesn't say a lot for the conventions. They obviously took so long to organise and to get going that, that the technology of the military had changed. They spent decades just talking and trying to organise a time to get these conventions up and running. All the while the military machine is still rolling over and continuously changing. So some modifications were made to existing rules and a few more were added for consideration, one of which being limitations on naval warfare. So at this time, naval warfare was expanding and becoming a new focal point in war. And this is obviously pre-World War I. Whoever had the biggest navy was pretty much the dominant force on the battlefield. And as the decades went on and the more warfare progressed, air warfare took the place of naval warfare. Restrictions were placed on, on air forces and not so much naval, which is where we find ourselves today. Whoever has the biggest air force today is probably the most dangerous. So during the convention, the first glimpses of the upcoming war start to shine through. And this is where all these nations start to butt heads and this loose alliance in these, held in the convention starts to fracture. 
one country wants to do one thing, another country wants to do something else, another country disagrees with both of them, and it's the same cycle that just keeps going on and on. None of these leaders could lead, none of the politicians or these diplomats could really get the point across without causing some conflict or problem with their opposing opposition. One of the problems was that Britain wanted to put limitations on the armament capabilities, which again was vetoed by several countries, led once again by Germany. The Germans were concerned that the limitations would hinder the development of their navy, and as it turned out, the British had the largest navy in the world at the time. So, this is another huge factor with these conventions. You've got a lot of national bias coming through and national superiority. The Brits want to be the only ones to have the largest navy in the world so they can control a majority of these countries like Austria or Germany that are starting to industrialize their militaries more and start to produce more weapons and vehicles of war who may oppose a threat to them. On one side of the coin, you could argue that, yeah, the Brits are only trying to protect their own national interest in their own country. But on the other side of that, this could be seen as Britain trying to take superiority over European nations. Obviously, a lot of them weren't as powerful as the British Empire at the time. And obviously, not all the European countries had the resources that Germany and Austria did. But from one point of view, it does look like the Brits are trying to keep power for themselves. They don't want to lose the monopoly on naval superiority. Or maybe they could see that Germany would be a future threat. And as history played out, they were pretty much right. So in theory, these conventions are good. But the world needs to take the ego out of the equation. Nations really need to try to see the bigger picture and to try and see everyone else's point of view. Having said that, I can see Germany's point of view. There is always one top dog that wants to control things, no matter how fair things seem to appear. And who put these countries in charge? Where is the neutral overseer that mediates these conventions? And that seems to be a problem with the conventions not leading anywhere, is there really isn't, doesn't seem to be any type of judge or jury. Well, like I said, there's no overseer or mediator that can say, hey, look, we respect you trying to protect your own country, but, you know, I can see Germany's point of view. Maybe they need to, maybe they should be allowed to build up their army or navy. But within reason, you can't just go hoarding a whole bunch of shit because that looks like you're preparing for war and that you might do some bad shit. Britain, maybe send some inspectors or something over there to make sure they're on the straight and narrow. If things start to get out of control, maybe report back here in a couple of months for another round of talks. That will probably not lead anywhere, but maybe they will. Who knows, it's just me pondering the situation in a perfect world. But unfortunately, we're not living in a perfect world. Germany rejects the proposed compulsory arbitration, which in the light of everything, you can probably understand why. Without a mediator or some sort of control system in place, this is all just bullshit. It's just one side talking shit to the other. And ultimately, this is the biggest failure of the conventions. Just like the Biological Warfare Convention that came half a century later, there was no governing body or authoritative council like the UN or the WHO to make sure the nations involved kept their word and adhered to the rules of the conventions. In the end, it was just talk with very little action that could be reinforced. The one good thing to come out of the conventions was it paved the way for future conventions such as the Biological Warfare Convention, but the old problem still remained. 
a lot of the rules drafted then are still in use today, such as the use of ammunition, the targeting of civilians, etc., the use of biological agents or poisonous gases. So the treaty came into effect on the 18th of October 1910. 12 out of the 13 treaties were ratified and entered into the one declaration, which you would think at the start of the enlightened 20th century, we would see an end to all conflict and war, especially the use of the outlined inhumane weapons. Right? Wrong. So a lot of these things weren't really thought out properly, and it does really show the mindset of the time. So I find the mindset of the early 19th century really disturbing. They claim to be all about you know, being humane. In the coming months and years, the most inhumane, industrialized slaughter of human beings started in Europe. And that is obviously World War I. Like, never before in history have people killed so efficiently and so quickly on a scale of that size. You can say what you want about the previous centuries and you know, ancient warfare, but going down 400 men in a couple of minutes, I need to have some cunt blowing a whistle for the next wave to go over the top and get gunned down. What, make up a couple of hundred meters if they're lucky? In reality, it's probably more like a few meters before everybody's torn to pieces by machine guns. Okay, that didn't work. Blow the whistle. Next lot of guys up. Over the top. Same outcome. No one ever changed the rules or tactics. They just kept doing the same old 18th century fixed bayonets and charge tactic that they had been that most of the generals and leadership in World War One were used to. A lot of the leadership of the day during World War One was completely out of touch with the modern changing nature of warfare. They were used to the old cavalry charges on horses, get your sabers out, start charge, start making a big noise, charge toward the enemy and heroically cut them down. Get a ribbon and a medal and retire to your fucking cottage in Northumberland somewhere. They completely didn't adopt any new tactics for what was essentially modern warfare. And the fact that these people talk about not using biological warfare or gas, but in the end they ended up doing it, shows you that these nations probably never gave a shit to begin with. Targeting of civilians was another thing. How many people died in France that were non-combatants? You know, World War I had a lot of firsts. Rapidly firing machine guns that could fire bullets at a rate that had never been seen before in history. Tanks. Mustard gas. High explosive cannons, naval destroyers bombarding battlefields with massive shells. World War I had, had a lot of firsts and none of them were very good. It also reflects the complete lack of care for, for anybody in the lower classes. The class system was very prevalent in World War I. If you were rich, you could buy your way in or out. If you are poor, you had to go fight the King's War. It wasn't the rich people going over the top of you. There was probably some of them that were well-off, who had a sense of duty. But there's a lot of them that could buy their way out of a bad situation. The mindset of that era was very, very disturbing. And ultimately, it's the same one that led into World War II. And it's one that is still being grappled with today. So as it turned out, no one listened or adhered to the Hague Conventions. And the world went to war anyway, making the convention a complete waste of fucking time. So the Germans kick things off by invading Belgium. There's a lot more to it than that. 
There were many factors involved in World War I, and no country is solely responsible. So that's an abbreviated version of the story. You should probably get the gist of it by now. What's going on? What sides are right? Right? What sides are wrong? And where all this is heading? So as far as records show, Germany had invested in a covert biological program and seemed to be among the first nations to use and develop biological warfare in the early 20th century. Germany used biological warfare during the war, but how effective was it? And did it really have the desired effect on the enemy? Most attempts revolved around trying to sabotage the enemy supply lines or incapacitate enemy troops while in the process trying to keep their own as safe as possible. The German biological warfare plan centered around attacking not so much enemy troops, but their animals. The plan was elaborate and very ambitious. There were many moving parts to this plan, and it is very hard to believe it was ever considered. It's in theory, on paper it works, but the reality of it is much different. So the plan involved sending German agents to enemy countries to sabotage animals used for military service, such as horses, donkeys and mules, or animals used to carry supplies to the frontline troops from 1915 to 1918. So it's a pretty evil plan, but in a sick way, it is very clever. There was obviously no regard for animal life back then, otherwise you wouldn't be dragging horses and animals into a human war. War is man's domain, and the animals are just caught in the crossfire, unfortunately. As you can probably tell, I am a passionate animal lover. There has been some evidence found indicating that German spies slash saboteurs were conducting a covert biological warfare campaign against animals in at least five neutral but allied affiliated countries that provided trade to Germany's enemies, including the US, Norway, Romania, Argentina and Spain. There's probably more than that, and it wasn't just neutral nations either. I'd say the UK and the closer European countries would probably have also been on that list. There's not a lot of evidence or history known about some of these German sabotage networks, but we do know they did happen. They covered their tracks very well, and obviously this is pre-digital age, and it would have been very, very hard to try and find any concrete evidence back then, let alone now. One known act of biological sabotage occurred in Norway, where agents tried to infect reindeers used by the military to take supplies destined for British troops across the northern part of the country and into Russia. Not 100% sure I believe that. Um, you would think that it'd be pretty hard to find a reindeer in the middle of Norway. Reindeers have been used for thousands of years there. I'm not sure how logical or how effective that would have been. If the reindeers were in a pen near a supply depot, yeah, maybe, but how would they find them across the Arctic tundra of Norway? It'd also be pretty inhospitable too. There's a huge personal risk to the German agent. So the plan only works if the reindeers are used, which would only be in the coldest, most rugged parts of Norway, meaning an agent has to go deep behind enemy lines. They have to risk being caught or killed to infect animals at a port. And they preferably have to do this days, if not a week, before the reindeers leave. You also don't know how long it would take for the biological agent to work, if it works at all, and if it hasn't been frozen or died in the process of being transported. 
That's also taken into account how much you pull out of the bioagent they can carry and what if the animals are vaccinated against it and that was a thing back then. Animals were vaccinated for that type of stuff. So a similar tactic was used on horses, cattle, mule and donkeys. Pretty much any animal that served any purpose to the war effort was in the Germans' crosshairs. They did this by infecting them with glanders or anthrax. So you have to assume that it probably used glanders over anthrax. It's probably a hell of a lot less dangerous, especially if you dropped it. So in 1915, the United States was a target. The Germans launched a bold and risky operation to infect horses and mules intended to be transported to the Allied forces on the Western Front. The attacks took place on the East Coast and were led by a man called Anton Delger. Delger is an interesting character. He was born in the US and raised in Germany. His family has deep roots in the US. His father, Hubert, served in the US Army as a captain during the Civil War, which makes his actions all the more confusing. Why would a guy like this lead a biological attack on the US? What would his ancestors say? So Deliger is a very interesting man with a very colourful personal and family history. He was born on a farm in Virginia named Greenfield, which, as we will find out a little later, ironically, was a horse farm. Dilger was born on the 13th of February, 1884. His father, Hubert, was a German migrant that had served in the US Army during the Civil War. He was a captain and a horse artillery officer. He was also somewhat of a hero. He won the Medal of Honor for his service in the Battle of Chancellorville. His father's actions during the battle helped to save Hooker's Union troops' lives during the retreat after Stonewall Jackson flanked the Union forces. So there's a very strong dualistic theme running through the Dilger family. Horses in Germany. Both father and son are polar opposites of one another. His dad was somewhat of a horse whisperer and he knew how to handle them. Anton, on the other hand, as we'll find out a little later, has a lot to do with horses, but not in the same way. His father seems to be very patriotically American, but Dilger seems to favour his German roots over his American ones. Anton had the normal farm life upbringing. He learned how to fish and hunt, he rode horses, and became familiar with animals. He was one of about six kids in the Dilger family. He had a brother, Carl. We'll get back to Carl a little later. And he also had four sisters. So I keep talking about his choices and his moral decisions as his character evolves over the course of World War I. And I think the seeds of that were planted while he was young. One of the biggest influences in his life came from his German heritage on his mother's side of the family. He had a somewhat famous great-grandfather that he had revered, Dr. Friedrich Tiedemann. He was known as the great psychologist of Heidelberg. So the love for Germany was a trait that runs through the family. His grandfather was a medical doctor based in Germany as, as well. His sisters too had an affinity for their German side. All four of them married German men and moved to Germany to live. Anton moved to Germany at the age of nine where he gets his education. And to chase a dream of becoming a doctor like his great-grandfather and grandfather. He moves in with one of his sisters and lives a pretty well-off German life. He lives in a pretty nice suburb in Germany. He has it pretty easy. So we fast forward a few years and he attends the gymnasium prep school for higher education in Bensheim. It is now 1908 
and Anton attends the University of Heidelberg and passes the medical exams, which leads him to working as an assistant in the surgical clinic a year later in 1909. It's around this time where he studies to get a doctorate. He studies microbiology and germ culture, unsurprisingly. It's while studying at uni he learns the skills that in the coming years would make him one of the most dangerous men of World War I. He learns how to set up a lab for tissue cultures, and he attempts to grow his own animal cells in tissue cultures. The goal was to prevent bacterial infection in animals. So it goes without saying, he was pretty unsuccessful at his attempt. But once again, irony strikes the Dilger family. In a few years' time, he is basically trying to do the opposite of what he learned in uni. So as I keep saying, he Dilger is an interesting character. He grows up around animals, especially with horses. His grandfather was into horses. So where does his hatred of animals come from? Did it start early, or it, did he get the idea while he was at uni? Or was it an idea that came to him during the stresses of war? But this fact all contradicts his upbringing on a farm. He completes his degree and graduates in the top 20% of his class in 1912, a few years before the war starts. Well, good for Dilger. He sounds like a pretty smart fellow. It's about a year later, in 1913, when things start to decline for the family, which leads to him selling off half of the farm in, to the US government. After the death of Anton's father, Hubert, as things turn out, the portion of the farm that was sold to the government went to the army, which became known as the US Army Remount Depot, which as the name suggests, was a depot. Remount Depot was primarily used for the training and assessment of war horses destined for the front line. So what went wrong with Dilger? What made him go to the dark side? And as with most things you find over history, I don't think it's just one thing. There's a series of events that lead to Dilger crossing that line. His history is what makes him side with Germany, I think. He has some interesting relatives. His grandfather, Friedrich Tiedemann, was the Heidelberg Institute of Anatomy's director. He also had a cousin of the 118th Jaeger Division commander, General Hubert Lamy, who might have served during World War II. He also has another cousin who served in the army, a man by the name of General Karl Erich Kohler. He was a commander of the 20th Army Corps. So could this be one of the reasons or the main reason why his loyalties are so convoluted? His family history in Germany. So you can kind of see where he gets his inspiration from. He has this, he's obviously a very smart guy. His ancestors are into medicine. It's obviously one of the big inspirations for him becoming a doctor. But he also has a military element that he wants to serve. So Dilger is still in Germany. And if I had to guess, this is more than likely where his destiny is sealed. What happens in the next few years sets up Dilger's transition to the dark side. What happens in the next few years sets up Dilger's transition to the dark side. He was quickly getting a name for himself in the medical world. Word had gotten around that he was a very talented young surgeon. So the war breaks out in 1914 and Dilger heeds the call of duty and serves Germany as a surgeon. He travels to Bulgaria and Serbia to assist on the front lines in the battlefield hospitals. He does this for over a year, but during the process... He loses a few family members to the war. So is this what pushes him over the edge, or starts to sway his opinion of the the war and of the Allied forces? By this point, he is pretty much all for the fatherland and willing to help the German war effort 
however he can. There aren't many records surviving about his whereabouts at this time. There's a lot of mystery surrounding Dilga and his movements. And the ones I could find are a little shaky at best, so I'll have to hypothetically fill in some of the blanks here. It is more than likely that it's around this time he is recruited for the sabotage squad by a man named Rudolf Nadonli. Delga's split personality, nationality, slash allegiances, combined with his US passport, made him an irresistible target for German intelligence. Nadonli was a military officer and a German diplomat, serving as the German ambassador to Turkey from 1924 to 33. He also served as the ambassador to the Soviet Union from 1932 to 33. The Donley was also an integral part of the German general staff, also known as the GGS. The GGS was a dedicated arm of the German army that researched all things war, including refining and evolving tactics in combat, mobilization of men and machines, and military campaigns. So only the best and brightest officers were selected for the GGS, money, wealth, or social standing, weren't really as important, which is a huge difference between the Germans and a lot of other military powers of the day, where you could just buy your way into a command position if you had enough money or social standing to do so. So if you were the son of a prominent public figure or politician, or if your father had served, or you had a relative that served in a position of power, they could pull a few strings to get you into an officer's academy. The British command structure in World War I had a lot of rich kids playing leader due to a rich father, or they were born into the right family, or the right part of society. In reality, some of them could barely read or write, and were dangerously unqualified to lead men into battle. So, Nadoni must have been pretty clever to get a position with the GGS. And this is why Germany was so dominant for such a long time. It was due to the training the officers at the GGS had to go through, that really set them out compared to other military units around the world. So the GGS also researched varying forms of warfare that are now considered inhumane or overly brutal. One of these forms of warfare was, unsurprisingly, the biological variety. And this is where Nadolny comes in. He was the leader of the political wing of the GGS. You have to excuse my attempt at German here. The political wing was known as the Section Politica Berlin des General Stabs. Apologies to anyone in Germany listening to that. That was a piss poor attempt at German. So this particular wing of the army specialised in, you guessed it, sabotage. In particular, the use of explosives and biological warfare. So going back to what I was saying about the conventions in The Hague and Geneva and the acceptable use of warfare and what was considered inhumane, where's the morality by the GGS, or lack thereof? It's pretty sick thinking for such a sophisticated and highly trained organization like the GGS. They obviously had a completely different mindset to a lot of other world militaries at the time. Nadolny and his team sent bioagents that consisted of glanders and anthrax to the German embassy in Romania, so they could be used to infect animals the Romanians were going to supply the Russians with. So, this is a very diabolical and very sneaky plan. I can see why he was selected for the job. He seems pretty ruthless and pretty pretty well skilled for the job. He obviously has no qualms about spreading biological agents that could potentially start 
an epidemic and killed millions of people and animals. He also had a pretty intimate knowledge of embassies and how they worked, which is another reason why he was the perfect man for the job. It's during this operation Nadonali sends Dilger to the US on a covert state-sponsored bioterrorism mission, making it one of the first, if not the first, bioterrorism attack in the United States during the 20th century. This caper lasted roughly a year, from 1915 to 1916, before being reassigned in the mid-1916s to a diplomatic position in Persia. Nadonli returns to Germany at the end of the war in November of 1917, taking up a leadership position in the Eastern Department of the German Foreign Office. During his reign of bioterror during 1915, he was producing bioagents in Berlin while the war raged on and distributing them to neutral countries supplying allied forces. His network was elaborate and pretty well run because no one stopped him or really seems to catch on to what he was doing. The Allies might have eventually caught on to what he was doing, but if so, there would probably be a hell of a lot more evidence about the program than the little amount I could find. There's not a huge amount of evidence that exists about what Nadonli was up to, or where the labs were located in Berlin, or just where they exactly sent the germ cultures when they were done with them. There's a lot of mystery surrounding the biological warfare program, and as I've mentioned before, they cover the tracks very well. He allegedly sends biological packages to the US, Spain, Romania, and Argentina. So Dilger's on his way to the US. He returns to the United States in 1915, around the same time Nadonli is Nadonli is working at the GGS, heading up the bioweapon department. Dilger smuggles glanders and anthrax into the still neutral US upon his return. He knows very well what he is doing and carries out his mission with the intention of using the agents for bio-based sabotage. He is acting on Nadonli's orders and the US-based German intelligence. But he is also a willing participant. I do believe he meant to spread glanders and anthrax to US-bred horses in the service of Germany's war effort. This is what I mean by this guy's alliances are completely fucked. He knows what he's doing and he's more than happy to and he is more than happy to execute his mission without too much protest. He's an all-too-willing candidate. The German plan was ballsy and completely evil. They wanted to disrupt the enemy supply lines and prevent neutral nations like the United States from supplying their enemies with thousands of horses and other livestock, such as donkeys and cattle, for the war effort. It probably seems a bit weird today, relying on animals in warfare, but back in 99, but back in World War One, animals were a critical part of the war machine. Horses and donkeys were invaluable to moving supplies and equipment. A lot of the trench-based warfare on the front line, on the Western Front, it was too muddy and to get vehicles in there. It was also at a time where Truck technology wasn't exactly the best. You could pretty much use it as a troop transporter and to carry supplies, but they weren't really that great off-road. There's a famous story in World War I about Simpson and his donkey. Simpson was in the Australian Army, and he used his faithful donkey to transport injured soldiers from the front lines of Gallipoli down to the medical tents. He would go up in the pretty rugged, hilly terrain, and transport as many people as he could. I think he was eventually killed in action. I can't remember what happened to his donkey. 
Another example would be the horse from Warhorse. There's thousands of other examples all throughout World War One. Donkeys and mules are also used to carry supplies to the troops. The animals are also cheaper to buy and replace than the trucks were. A horse could also get into places that a truck couldn't, and given the terrain of the day and the technology available to them, the horse was probably more reliable. Neutral nations like the US also provided loans and goods like clothing and weapons to allied nations, which obviously the Germans didn't want their enemies getting their hands on. So Dilger arrives in New York en route to Washington, D.C. He wasn't alone on his mission. Among his personal possessions was his medical briefcase, and he had millions of microscopic allies with him. He smuggles test tubes containing the elements to produce glanders into the United States. So I'm not sure what the penalty today would be for illegally smuggling millions of germs into a country. It's probably pretty severe. And obviously shows just how easy it was to cross international borders back then. All you needed is a passport and a smile. There wasn't any type of biosecurity. There wasn't metal detectors. You could pretty much come and go relatively unchecked. I'm sure there was some security procedures. They just weren't as sophisticated as what we have now. And this is also a long time before 9-11. The US was a little naive when it came to border security. As were a lot of nations that weren't directly affected by World War One. So from there, Dilger travels to DC to visit his sister Joe. But methinks he had other plans on his trip to DC than just visiting his sister. He starts scouting the neighborhood for a potential location to set up shop. He eventually finds a suitable rental house and sets up a physician practice with a lab in the basement that he can work on producing biological agents from. So obviously the practice was a complete ruse. It was just to look good and to stop people asking questions. No one's going to ask questions if a medical professional sets up a lab in the basement. It kind of goes with the territory. During his time running the practice in DC, he doesn't see any patients or treat anybody. It's a very good thing he didn't have nosy neighbours, and there wasn't a random health inspector checking on the credibility of the practice. However, there was more work to do than just one man could handle, which prompts Anton to travel back to his family's farm to ask his brother Carl and sister M to help him run the lab slash the practice. Both his brother and sister agree to help him out. So all three of them travel back to DC. His sister acts as the housekeeper of the practice. She also acts as the public relations representative. She covered the front of house duties and directed the attention of the practice away from what her brother was really up to. She also had a more passive role in upkeeping the false integrity of the practice. She also deflected any negative gossip or any gossip of any kind that more than likely would have popped up from time to time. In other words, she countered anybody from spreading rumors about the mysterious medical practice run by the weird German man that never seems to have any patience. It was also pretty weird that you know a new medical practice pops up in a pretty quiet neighborhood. It seemingly pops up overnight and it never, it never sees any patients. If that was the day, people would be asking a lot of questions. But the kicker is, she didn't know what her brother was really up to, or the extent of his plans. 
Anton's brother Carl is a pretty interesting character. Like his brother, Carl had some experience working with germ cultures. Both had put more than a few hours on the clock in a lab setting. Carl's experience with labs just wasn't quite the same as his brother's. Carl owned a brewery in Montana, which obviously meant he knew how to handle yeast and understood how the fermentation process worked, which probably wasn't all that different to microbiology or fucking around in the lab. Unlike their sister, Anton filled Carl in on what he was doing and the mission to sabotage livestock. Carl is much like Anton, and he was more than willing to help out his brother conduct sabotage on U.S. soil. The location of the operation was near the affluent and pretty nice neighborhood ironically named Chevy Chase Circle, northwest of Washington, D.C., on 33rd Street. The scary thing was, it was about six miles from the White House. So you can kind of see why they chose the spot and why the GGS would be interested in a location like this. This is pretty much the heart of politics and decision-making in the U.S., this also kind of makes a very strong statement. The Germans are like, haha, we are right near your leadership and you have no clue what we are up to or what we are planning. It is a very ambitious and very risky operation the Germans are running. The location was perfect. Anton could blend in. He could seem like one of the locals and not raise too many eyebrows. This was also helped out due to the fact that the location was full of strangers anyway, so the Dilgers wouldn't seem out of place. This area was notorious for people coming and going and moving in and out at all times of the year. No one's really going to notice a new German family that had just moved in around the corner. So the brothers set up a lab in the basement of the practice, which, as it turned out, was big enough and could accommodate all the equipment necessary in a pretty sophisticated lab setup. It also had a second entrance to add to the clandestine nature of his mission. It adds a level of secret style. They set up the lab, obviously, to grow and produce the bioagents needed for the mission. The germs in question were anthrax and glanders. The brothers brought all the items required for the running of the lab, such as test tubes, petri dishes, vials, incubation ovens, and a sterilizing machine. To test if their germ concoctions worked, they also brought guinea pigs to try them out on. Poor little fellas. So I guess that's probably where the term guinea pig comes from. Because they literally tested germs on guinea pigs. Pretty sick. This is a pretty definitive case of hiding in plain sight. And given Anton had a US passport, he could probably travel back and forth without too much trouble. Or raising too many red flags. I'd also... I think it's probably safe to assume that his brother Carl and sister M had passports as well. But back then it was pretty easy to travel from country to country. No, there were no watch lists, no FBI, top 10 most wanted. There was no bioscanners, fingerprint scanners, no x-rays or TSA. You could probably come and go pretty easy. Now obviously there were some security measures, but they weren't that good. I mean, obviously if they didn't pick up on Dilga... They probably didn't pick up on a lot of people. And even if someone did check Dilga's bags and find test tubes and vials, he's a doctor, so he's probably not going to raise any flags anyway. He could come up with any story, like he's got some new sample he's brought from overseas. There would have been no way to check it out. 
or know where to check it quickly. Obviously, there's no online. You couldn't just do a quick Google search or ask for documents to be sent over from a different country. I mean, he's got the credentials. He is a doctor. Him taking test tubes and petri dishes full of stuff probably didn't raise a hell of a lot of red flags as it would today. You know, but also probably didn't need any permits or anything like that. If they did check his bags, they would have found anthrax and glanders. But then again, they probably wouldn't have known what it was anyway. But the plan was more sophisticated than just two guys breaking bad in a basement in the middle of the burbs, hoping their poisonous shit would be effective. There was obviously the safety aspects of making deadly pathogens to consider. You had to be very careful handling them, because even though they were designed to infect horses, these viruses could still kill humans. So after the manufacturing process was complete and the viruses were ready for distribution, they would be collected by a German agent, or a Abteilung. Abteilung. It's another horrible German pronunciation. A military intelligence officer for the Imperial German Army, working out of the Baltimore Agency. They would pick up the goods once a week and deliver them to their intended destinations. The destinations in question were the ports up and down the East Coast, some of which included the port of Norfolk, Newport News, the port of New York, and Baltimore. And as we will see, Baltimore plays a pretty big part in this tale. So, it does make you wonder, it's such a big and elaborate operation, how are two guys, or a handful of guys, going to pull this off? You'd think a massive network would be needed to pull off an operation of this size, which also means much larger costs. The Baltimore agents and those who had contact with the brothers' lab came to call the lab Tony's Lab as somewhat of a code. So one German agent would go, oh, I'm going to Tony's Lab after this. Obviously, that doesn't raise any suspicion. And obviously, no one would think that Tony's Lab is a reference to a biological manufacturing lab. So the Dilger brothers' contact was a man named Captain Frederick Hinch. He was a leader, or the leader, of the Baltimore agents. Just like the German bioweapon program, there's not a lot known about Mr. Hinch. So Mr. Hinch's responsibilities included stopping by the lab to check the quality of the pathogens, which a poor unfortunate guinea pig would unwillingly volunteer for that job. So the guinea pigs would be injected with the pathogen maybe a week, a couple of days before Hinch's arrival. When Hinch was satisfied with the quality, the brothers would be paid for the time and expenses, which was usually a couple of grand. That's pretty good money by any standards back then. So there's obviously a very sophisticated network of German agents operating in the area. But how many? Reports are very shaky, and there's no evidence to even indicate how many German agents were involved in total in the, during the operation. We can only really speculate. The ones we do know about were obviously Hinch, the Dilger brothers, and a couple of other characters that we'll get to later on. But I'm guessing it probably wasn't a huge number of German agents, but there would have to be enough to get the job done. Otherwise, what would be the point? Probably a lot of auxiliary people would have been brought in who would have been told to do this, but may not necessarily known what the outcome of the job was or necessarily what they were being paid to do. They're probably told to sabotage something or put this vial of something or plant this bomb here. Don't ask any questions and get paid. They probably didn't know the overall grand scheme of the sabotage network, but they still did play a part in it. 
The area of operation is pretty big. It seems to stretch all the way down the east coast. So, I mean, I'd, I'd estimate you'd probably need a network of at least a couple of hundred people, maybe anywhere between five to 50 people who knew most, if not all, the details of the plan, and the rest just being the hired help, or those who knew different sections of the plan who had a specific job to execute that would have a bigger effect on the overall outcome. But I'm guessing there was probably a network of a few hundred people. It's a pretty big area. You would need a few dozen people at least in every port just to be able to get things done on time. It also probably safely assumed that most of the communication wasn't done by phone. There wasn't a lot of phones around. Back then there probably was enough, but that was probably expensive and probably too risky because anyone could be listening. So you'd have to assume that most of the communications were done by either coded or encrypted messages or face-to-face contact. That also means that someone has to physically drive or take a ship to the port or to the area in question and relay the messages manually. Obviously, there's no text messages or anything like that back then, so and even if there was, they wouldn't be using them because it would be too risky. Probably make the assumption that they operated much the same way a modern-day terrorist cell does, using as little electronic communication as possible. However, I think more people probably would have been needed than less. More probably would have been needed to distribute the pathogen to the designated targets. If Germany were to be successful in the sabotage attempts, more hands were going to be needed. So the Germans recruited stevedores from Baltimore to help in the operation. Money was more than likely the main motivator. That also brings up the question of the moral choices of the individuals. It was also at a time where the US was neutral. So this brings up the question, would the stevedores have taken the job if the US was at war? Or was it purely just for the money? It's also a very bold and risky move by the Germans. I mean, what if one of the dock workers told the cops or the feds and spilled the beans? The whole operation would have been exposed. I think a lot of the dock workers were Irish. They were pretty patriotically Irish. And some of them had a lot of connection to the Clan de Gaulle, or the Clan de Gaulle, however you pronounce it, who were an Irish Republican movement based out of the US, who had connection to an Irish Republican group back in Ireland. I think the US branch got pretty extreme over time and would probably be called a terrorist group today. The first job required of the stevedores was planting explosives. There were many Germans in the US working in these areas at the time. There was also a large number of German Navy sailors that were pretty much stranded in US ports. Neutral ports back then were safe havens for stranded sailors. This was due to the blockade of Germany. The British put a blockade in place against Germany to stop supplies getting to the front lines. This also stranded a lot of German sailors who couldn't return home, obviously due to the blockade. So they they had to bunker down in any neutral port that was close by. So as a result, there were a lot of bored sailors who were going to side with Germany. Obviously, they were German. This is where a decent amount of the recruits came from. They had the time, the skills, and the motivation to pull off most forms of sabotage pretty effectively. They could also be trusted to keep their mouths shut as they were assisting the German war effort. The sabotage network was vast and very well connected. It had infected many levels of society. The first job required of the stevedores by the Germans was to sabotage supply ships and the wharves by planting explosive devices on them. 
And this is a big step and a big thing to ask of one person. If that person didn't agree with this plan, it could bring the whole thing down, if they agreed to it at all. I'm a little skeptical of this. Some workers might be in it for the money or the rewards. And even though this was nearly a century before 9-11, I can't imagine the authorities would look too kindly on saboteurs that planted explosives on US or Allied ships. Some workers might agree with the German plan. They might also go along with planting explosives. They might not care who they hurt in the process. They might just be in it for the money, especially if they don't have any. But there would have been some that would have been pretty adverse to using explosives. They might have been okay injecting a horse with glanders, but killing hundreds of people on the ship is another thing. The consequences of getting caught would be way too high compared to the rewards. Those responsible would have been executed for treason if they were caught. German sailors, I can imagine, would, would probably be in a different category. They would probably be more inclined to do it considering they are in the German military and they're, in their eyes they're assisting the German war effort. These actions also strain relationships between the US and Germany. The Germans want to keep the Americans out of the war, but at the same time the more attacks you conduct on US soil, the higher the chance America is going to join the war. So things could have turned very dramatic very quick. To add another layer of sophistication and complexity, the Baltimore agents worked out of the offices of the North German Lloyd Shipping Company, or the Nordestra Lloyd, or the NDL, for short. So the saboteurs were working out of the offices of a legitimate company. That would have been difficult. They would have needed to hide things in plain sight. Obviously, they were pretty good at this, considering the lab was hidden in plain sight. They also would have had to dodge inspections from US Customs and probably police. The more attacks went on, the more... The light gets shit on the operation. You don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to realize that most of these events are taking place in or around the ports and docks. So the German shipping companies during the war would have faced a lot of trials and tribulations. It would have been very difficult to try and bypass the British blockade and export goods around the world or get back into Germany with goods. How do you prove it's not for the military and not civilian use? It would have been very dangerous just in general. You would have made yourself vulnerable to submarine attacks or attacks from the Navy. You also would have had to make sure all your paperwork was filled out properly, a lesson Novak Djokovic could probably learn from. So navigating the seas to neutral ports would have been tough. I mean, just because you're a neutral port doesn't mean the war can't catch up with you. So even if a German shipping company wasn't into supporting the war effort and wanted to stay clear of hostilities and go about their business as a legit company, just focused on commerce and trade, it would have been very difficult. The war would have affected everything. It could also cost lives at sea. The German agenda definitely put a lot of legit companies at risk. Hinch's job was the head of sabotage operations. He was responsible for the organizing of dock workers as well as the German ship crews who were in on the plan. This included the planning of bombs on US ships, orchestrating strikes on of dock workers by spreading propagandous flyers and material, as well as starting the rumor mill. Later in the operation, he was responsible for the infecting of horses with the bioagents produced by the Dilgers. The planning of explosives was the first stage of the sabotage plan. Cigar bombs would be planted in the hulls of US and British ships transporting munitions and supplies to the Allies. 
Before the infecting of horses had begun, Hinch's crew of saboteurs tried to blow up trains, or at least try to derail them, that were carrying horses, mules and donkeys on the way to British military depots like the one in Newport. So this wasn't just isolated to the United States. Hinch's crew tried the same tactic in Canada. Canada was obviously in the war and not neutral. So during the winter of January 1915, a group of German agents run into a bit of trouble while trying to plant explosives on the tracks. The cold and wintry conditions hindered the agents, and as far as we know, they didn't blow up the train carrying horses and ammo. Supply trains were the main target of the Germans, but this was becoming increasingly difficult. A similar tactic was used on the Chicago stockyards, but things started to go south. Trying to plant explosives was becoming increasingly risky. This was made a hell of a lot more difficult when bombs didn't go off or they can't, couldn't be planted properly due to bad weather. The rewards weren't worth the risk. So, the Germans are forced to try a different approach at sabotaging. The events in question happened between 1915 and 1916 during this year. There were many attempts by German agents to infect horses, donkeys and mules in staging areas. Some attempts worked, some didn't but the full extent of the sabotage has never really been known. The same goes for how often these attacks occurred and the frequency. The tracks were covered pretty well, and there isn't a lot of information recorded by history or by any of the police departments in the area. We also don't know what the success or failure rate of these operations were, how many agents got caught or killed in the process, and what was the infection slash the death rate of the animals that were infected. The German saboteurs got away with a lot of shit and there isn't a lot of information that supports whether these attacks were that successful or not. You can probably make the assumption that some of them were, but a majority of them probably didn't work as well as the Germans might like. So one of these agents we do know a little bit about was a man named John Grant. He may have been a German agent. He may have been German or just a German agent recruited by Hinch. Was Grant even his real name? Was he even a real figure? There's not a lot of info about this guy, but we do know a few key pieces of information. Grant was a stevedore, so we can probably safely assume he was one of the Baltimore stevedores recruited by Hinch. Grant's job was to covertly infect horses at the Newport News shipyards. He made his way to the stables, ducking the guards and the watchmen on duty. He also probably would have blended into the background. He did work there after all, or he did work at the docks. He might not have worked at that one specifically, but he knew his way around the dockyards and wharfs. He may have been a stevedore in either the Baltimore or Virginia ports. Grant makes his way to the waterfront where the corrals were located, making his way past hundreds of horses, donkeys and mules on the way. They were waiting to be transported to a world away. It also makes you wonder like how many horses never came back. I mean, I think all in all there was about 8 million horses, donkeys and mules that died during the war. A majority died not from combat wounds, but from being worked to death and the inhumane living conditions and poor nutrition. So Grant makes the rounds and heads for the unsuspecting mule pen. He injects a mule with a syringe full of a putrid yellow looking substance. And this is Dilger's man-made glanders. So after the first mule was injected, Grant injected as many as he could in quick succession in the shortest amount of time. He 
and then heads for the two horse corrals that were located not too far away, injecting as many unsuspecting horses as possible. After a while, he dumps what is left of the virus sample in the animal's water and food supplies. The story goes he smuggled the equipment in a paper bag, which of course contained gloves, the syringes full of the bioagent, and after the job was done, he dumped everything in the river and fucked right off. As a result of Grant and others like him covertly using bioagents to spread diseases, thousands of horses, donkeys, and mules died. Exact numbers are unknown, and it's also not known whether they, whether this sabotage program was really that effective or not. Given that a majority of the horses did make it to the Western Front, I'd say it probably didn't have the desired effect the Germans had hoped for. So the attacks didn't go unnoticed forever. The more attacks that occurred, the more attention the German operation received. The police started to catch on that something fishy was going on. Meanwhile, the brothers Dilger keep running the basement lab until about the 29th of January, when Digler randomly decides he wants to return to Germany during the middle of the war. Dilger recently received a newly issued US passport. He tells the State Department he wanted to return to work as a doctor in Heidelberg. In other words, he wanted to go home and assist the German war effort in a passive way, or that was the official story he told the State Department. Undoubtedly, he also would have been reporting back to high command and would have received new orders in the process. He got an exemption slash letter of recommendation from the Army Medical Corps. So I have a copy of the, of the letter. It's by the Acting Chief of the Bureau of Citizenship, State Department, Washington, D.C. So this is the actual letter that was written on behalf of Dilger. It reads, Dear Sir, This is to state that Dr. Anton Dilger, a native-born American citizen, is known to me. He recently returned from Germany, where he acted as consulting surgeon to a German Red Cross hospital in Heidelberg. There's probably some truth to that, but probably a lot of that is complete bullshit. I don't think he returned on a humanitarian mission. From documents in his possession, and particularly one from the German Red Cross delegate in the United States, Mr. E. Hecker, I am satisfied that Dr. Dilger will be reinstated in his former position as soon as he arrives in Germany. It is recommended that he be issued a passport in order to enable him to return to Germany to continue his humane work. Very truly yours, Major Medical Corps, U.S. Army, Chief of Bureau. Makes me think something sus is going on here. So he goes back to Germany and does his thing. Now enter our next character in this tale of sabotage, and that is Police Detective Captain Tom Tuni. So Tuni was head of the bomb squad, and he had been put in charge of investigating and catching those responsible for the recent bombing of buildings and ships that had been taking place in New York and around the harbour. He was born in Ireland before immigrating to the US. He joined the police force at age 22 in 1898. Apparently he was inspired by his uncle John, who was a career-long constable back in Ireland. So Trini, in a way, is the first Homeland Security agent. He's investigating what Homeland Security would be investigating nowadays, but he's doing this as a New York City police officer. So as his career progressed, he was promoted to the head of the NYPD's bomb squad. The bomb squad isn't quite what you think it is, it's not exactly a bomb squad it did investigate bombings that were going on 
The Bomb Squad was more like the predecessor to Homeland Security meets NSA meets the Anti-Terrorism Unit. So as as his career progressed, he was promoted to head of the NYPD's Bomb Squad. He also lived on the west side of Manhattan, which is a mainly Irish neighborhood. In 1905, Tooney was tasked with investigating what we would now call a terror cell. It was a group of Italian anarchists that called themselves the Black Hand that were causing trouble in New York, and Tooney had been assigned to stop them. They were planting bombs around the city, causing mayhem, and running an extortion racket. So he was heading up the first anti-terror unit in the U.S. The Black Hand originated as an extortion racket in 1800 Italy, before making its way to the U.S. via Italian immigrants. This is pretty much the origin of the Mafia in New York. They had were continuing the tactics used in Italy, but just on a larger scale in and around New York. So the NYPD starts a task force called the Italian Squad to gather info and evidence and to deal with the threat of the Black Hand. The team is led by the famous New York cop, Joe Petrosino. And this is where Tuni and Petrosino's paths cross. When Tuni is assigned to the Italian squad early in his policing career. And if I had to guess, this is probably where Tuni refined his investigative skills. These skills come in handy in the future when he is catching German spies. By 1905, Joe had been assassinated by the Black Hand. However, the Italian squad continued investigating the Black Hand. And in 1914, the bombing squad was formed, made up of mostly officers from the Italian squad. Tuni was put in charge of the newly formed team. So as I mentioned before, it's not technically a bomb squad. It is more of a detective squad with extraordinary responsibilities. They just so happen to be stopping a anarchist group that was using bombs as its main way of terrorizing the population. So the mission was to focus on the Black Hand and the group extorting and planting bombs. It also targeted mafia figures and the newly uncovered German threat. A defining moment in Tom Tunney's career came in 1915 when the Italian squad undercovered a bombing plot by the Black Hand. They planned to plant a bomb in St. Patrick's Cathedral on St. Patrick's Day of all days. So someone really didn't like the Irish. The plot was foiled when Tom sent some of his detectives to go undercover in the church. The team was led by a man named Patrick Walsh who was one of Tom's trusted detectives. Walsh and a small team dressed as women working in the church. Walsh and his team are laid in wait for the, for the would-be bombers to arrive, going about their churchly duties in drag. So when the time came, they were ready to strike. The Black Hand members entered the church and tried to plan an explosive device, except they were caught in the act and apprehended by Walsh and his team. As the story goes, Walsh pulled out one of the fuses of the bomb. It's unknown if the bomb was lit or not. It just makes for a good detail in the story. So this brings us down to the German spies. After the Black Hand had been foiled, the bomb squad turned their attention to the mysterious explosions that had been going off all around the city and the waterfront. The problem had grown by 1917 despite the US still not entering the war. So this is pretty strange times. I mean, we think of bombings as a modern day phenomenon that's related to terrorism, but this has been going on for over 100 years. New York had been the target of terrorists and anarchists long before 9-11. And this is something that I didn't know about until I started researching this show. And I know this has kind of gone off the topic of bioweapons, but I found it really interesting. And all these little things connect. All these things were happening at the same time, and they all connect back into the bigger 
story of World War One and the biological weapons plot. This happens a lot when I look at history. A couple of central characters or figures can link up and connect the dots and connect an event over a span of time. So whoever thought a New York cop would end up playing a pivotal role in stopping German spies in New York? So the Germans found allies in a very deeply divided Irish community. The Irish despised the British and were willing to take the German side and assist in sabotaging in the war efforts. As a result, this split the Irish community on itself. It also split the Irish community with the wider American public. How would the Irish community be viewed in the eyes of the American public committing acts of terror on U.S. soil? So that is a interesting part of the story. The Irish hate the British. The Germans exploit the Irish's hate for the British. But the Irish are blowing things up on American soil, which is then dividing American opinion back on the Irish community. Which they obviously must have hated the British a lot because they don't seem to care too much about the ramifications of the American public. And, I mean, a lot of these people weren't born in America, so they could get sent back to Ireland if they're found out. It also illustrates just how fucked the time was. Everyone thinks that, oh, we're living in the worst times ever. Everything's, everyone hates each other. Everyone's fighting. You know, we're on the brink of a climate disaster. We're in this negative cycle. Everybody hates each other. Everything's negative. The news only reports bad stuff. Crime's increasing. The threat of war's increasing. Climate catastrophe is increasing. All this bad shit is happening at the same time, but this is really no different to what was happening over 100 years ago. Everyone seems to hate each other. There's acts of terrorism going on, sabotage. People aren't liking each other. Certain groups aren't getting along. And there's a bunch of negative shit happening in between all of that. So things aren't too much different to the current times. That's what I find fascinating about history is the more you look into it, the more things change, the more things stay the same. Not to sound cliche or anything, but it's pretty true. People have always hated each other and will continue to fight each other until there are no more people. Until there are no more humans in the world. To make things even more complex, there was also ethnic Irish tension brewing between the Irish Catholics and the Protestants, with the later using the attacks by the Irish as evidence that Protestants could never become naturalized U.S. citizens. So in the midst of all these attacks, one side of the Irish community is using the actions of the other Irish community as a way to discredit them even further by claiming they never have U.S. values at heart. When the Germans first recruited the Irish as saboteurs, the plan was to blow up ships with British supplies. But after a while, things got a little out of hand. The Irish took things a little too literally and started blowing up anything with a Union Jack flag on it. The US produced munitions, supplies, and provided loans to the Brits. In a way, on a national level, America favoured the old Irish enemy. Despite the fact that the US was paid by the British for the munitions and supplies it produced. But going back to the start of the war, the US was going to make supplies and munitions for both sides. They saw the war in Europe as a European war and one that they didn't need to intervene in. But when the blockade started, the British pressured the US into basically picking them over Germany. They were pretty much told what Germany was doing was bad and making munitions for them was only going to make the situation worse. And they'd be supporting an enemy that didn't have the best interest of humanity at heart. The Irish didn't like the British too much, and there is a reason for this. There's a pretty long and dark bloody history that goes with it that I'm not going to get into here. 
So a majority of the American public opinion favoured supporting the British, especially after the Germans started sinking passenger liners. The Germans found a friendly ear and an arm in the Irish, and they found plenty of volunteers on the docks and wharfs of Jersey, New York and Baltimore. The spies didn't have to look too hard and had their jobs made pretty easy when there was a strong anti-British sentiment that was openly expressed by the Irish stevedores and dock workers along the East Coast. So one of the big things that America had against Germany was the targeting of passenger liners. And this is kind of what the Brits were getting at, is that the Germans were going to go to lengths that the British wouldn't go to during the war, such as targeting passenger liners or civilians, which also contradicts the conventions I mentioned earlier and what was considered an unacceptable form of warfare, such as targeting of civilians and their property. So America was going to stay out of the war, provided the Germans didn't target any more passenger liners. It all comes down to restricted submarine warfare, I think it was called. The Germans and the British agreed the targeting of civilian passenger liners was a big no-no and was unacceptable, and that these passenger liners were not military targets, therefore off-limits. The Germans were notorious for torpedoing passenger liners during the war until the agreement was struck. The agreement was broken when the Germans torpedoed the Lusitania and sunk it, killing thousands of people, a hundred of which were Americans, and this outraged the president and eventually brought America into the war. They, the Germans had clearly violated the agreement and they had targeted passenger liners even though they said they were not going to. The Germans said, well, it's open season on passenger liners. I can't see how that's a that's a good enough reason. I mean, it's a civilian passenger liner. I mean, it's not got nothing to do with the war or the military. So to even think that was an acceptable target is kind of ludicrous. It's of course that's going to bring some backlash, and ultimately it did. America enters the war because the Germans violated the agreement. There's also a theory that the Lusitania was smuggling munitions in wheels of cheese that were hidden in the cargo hold, and that's why it sunk so quickly. I think it sunk in like 17 minutes. It is for this reason cops like Tuney and Walsh were so important, they offered another facet of the Irish-American. It also made them invaluable to stopping the attacks as they knew and were a part of the community and the people. The US enters World War I in the later part of 1917. Tuney and some of the bomb squad were adopted into military intelligence, along with a few select members of the NYPD. So this was a big deal. It was one of, or possibly the first time that a branch of the military or an intelligence agency had to investigate a threat on US soil. It may have also been the first cross-police military action. So both departments needed each other's help. Military intelligence was a very laid-back organization at the time. It, it only had a handful of people working for it and really didn't do a lot because there wasn't really much to do. They'd never worked on U.S. soil before. The U.S. had never really been attacked, apart from the British during the Revolutionary War. So they never really had the opportunity to investigate anything. So obviously they dropped the ball on the German spy ring. They don't really see them. They might have suspected them, or they might have started suspecting German spies after Tunis investigation, but that's not really clear. So at the time, the FBI was only a few years old and there was no Homeland Security or CIA. Most of those organizations came around during or after World War II. The US State Department was about the only organization that had been established prior to World War I. 
So the newly formed intelligence squad had to hit the ground running. There was no time to lose. The stakes were high, and Chuni and Co. had a very large area to cover, and a lot of responsibility, not only to themselves and to the city of New York, but to the country as well. So obviously, Chuni was a very smart and competent man, as was his team. The army wouldn't have asked him to join if he wasn't. You know, they had to catch these guys blowing stuff up and poisoning horses before any more damage could be done. So Tom and the team were on the case, but there wasn't much to go on, unfortunately. There wasn't a lot of evidence and not a lot of clues. The German threat was a much more elusive and cunning threat than the Black Hand had been. The Black Hand hadn't been very smart in the way they operated. They were kind of obvious and the cops were onto them. One lead that did provide some clues to the intent of the German saboteurs was Dilger's predecessor, Erich von Steinmetz. He tried first to produce viable biological samples, but was unsuccessful due to his lack of understanding on the finer details of microbiology. Tuning in the squad suspected a future bio-attack was more than likely to happen, but the when, where, and by who were a mystery. So Chuni did the most logical thing you could do in this kind of situation. He doubles the guards on the docks, depots, and horse stables around the area, the ones that were most likely to be targets. Workers on the waterfronts were told to keep a lookout for suspect activity and to watch the horses and other animals for signs of tampering. Meanwhile, while all this is going on, word makes its way back to Dilger, informing him that the cops were onto them in their little covert operation. A German man named Hilken tells Dilger and Hinch during a meeting with the pair that the game was up, that the authorities were asking dock workers questions about suspect activity and the sabotaging of horses. During the meeting, Dilger is informed by the shot calls back in Berlin that he is to return for discussions. Dilger returns to Germany, which leaves the day-to-day running of the lab to his brother Karl. As far as German intel knew, the lab was still a secret. Junie and the police were still unaware of it. So Karl and a friend who had been living with the brothers named Fred Herman started to expand production into other areas such as explosives manufacturing. The pair made cigar bombs, which were a favourite of saboteurs, especially the Irish, who loved planting them in British ships. I think the way the cigar bomb works, as its name suggests, is a cigar-shaped and sized object. The inside tube has acids in both ends. You can set a time release, so after the time has elapsed, it eats through the vials with the acid. It cracks the vials, the vials eat through the metal wall which detonates the explosives inside, or something like that. So as it turned out, some of Carl's cigar bombs were used in a pretty massive event, an explosion that was to come. We'll look at that event in the next episode. So besides the cigar bombs, Tony's lab wasn't as successful as it had been when Anton had been running the show. Carl starts to fuck up big time. Carl liked a few drinks, and after a couple of drinks, good old Carl couldn't keep his mouth shut, and he started telling anyone in earshot about the operation. Hench and Hilken had little choice but to send Carl back to Germany in May of 1916. He was putting the entire US sabotage operation in peril by running his mouth. So they gave him a message intended for the political section of the general staff. It was meant to be opened by them only, but well along the way, Carl loses the letter. I wonder why he lost that. Whether he lost it intentionally or not, no one really knows, but I think he probably lost it intentionally. The message more or less said 
to keep Carl in Germany and not to let him return as he was a liability to the whole operation and could undermine the operation's success. So Carl returns back to the US to the lab and continues to make cigar bombs with the other two. In July of 1916, Herman shuts down the DC lab and moves the whole operation down to St. Louis. The Dilgers are not with them, so Herman and Helken are left to produce bioagents without Anton's expertise. But ultimately, the St. Louis lab was a complete failure. Herman just wasn't as smart and didn't possess the knowledge of microbiology that Anton did. So the war continues to drag on. It is roughly a year later, in July of 1917, the final year of World War I, Tuning and his team made some progress in figuring out who was behind the bombings and poisoning attacks. But exactly who the masterminds slash masterminds might, have, might be was still a mystery. It's around this time that Anton returns to Germany to visit his brother. But there was an ulterior motive to the visit. He was to deliver a top-secret coded message to German diplomats and agents in the field. The message came from the top brass in Berlin. There's not a lot of records as to what was in the message, so we can only speculate to the content of the message. It was probably saying, the war's lost, pack up, destroy everything and get out of Dodge. It is at this time he is picked up by the FBI, known back then as the Bureau of Investigation. He was apprehended visiting his sister at the family farm. So he was interviewed and released without a lot of fuss. A week or two later, he is picked up again and interviewed by another agent of the Bureau while visiting his sister back in D.C. No charges or arrests were made. This is a quote from the agent who interviewed Diggler, and this is the quote. Dr. Diggler is not a man who would be guilty of any traitorous acts towards this country. So Diggler is either the smartest saboteur in the world, or he is the luckiest to have ever lived. Obviously, the technology and security of the day isn't the same as it is today. The feds back then sound very inept compared to their modern-day counterparts. I mean, there's not a, lot to, not a lot for them to go on, but at the same time, there's not a lot of investigative procedure being followed. On what grounds do they think that this guy is innocent? What are they basing this off of? Because he's a doctor and he's been to Germany on an apparent humanitarian mission. You don't have to be the best investigator in the world to realize that he's probably lying. And it's probably a very elaborate cover. And this is 1917 at a time when the local police departments are on to the German saboteur network. So why the hell haven't they sussed Dilger as a person of interest? I mean, they obviously arrested him for something. We don't really know what he was arrested for. Was he arrested for jaywalking because he, you know, wasn't wearing the right shoes? Who knows? There's not a lot of information as to why he's picked up. All we know is he's picked up and he was interviewed. So the FBI must have thought he was a person of interest, at least. Otherwise, they wouldn't have arrested him. He doesn't seem to be questioned very thoroughly and he's let go pretty quickly. But the fact that he's arrested again a week or two later obviously shows that they didn't get the results they wanted the first time around. He's still of interest, and they must suspect him of something, but we really don't know what it is, and he was just let go. So one of the main reasons Dilger and Co. were never caught wasn't so much because they were these criminal geniuses or because the Germans were smarter than everyone else. A lot of their luck came from the intel agencies. They were either understaffed, underfunded, or had ineffective, inefficient investigative practices. Most effective breakthroughs in the case came from Tuni and the NYPD. To make matters worse, America at the time was very naive about national security, especially when it involved other countries. Even though the US wasn't in the war, the war was still going to affect it. 
During the start of the war, the mentality of the day was we can make stuff for both sides. And this attracted enemies. Obviously, they sided with the British. But after the blockade and the embargo on Germany, the US became a very big target to Germany. They were seen as producing supplies and munitions for Germany's enemies, therefore making them a target. As the US officially enters World War I in April of 1917, the threat of Germany and its actions are brought into the public eye. German spies and saboteurs like Dilger were operating on borrowed time. The gig was up and the likelihood of being caught or killed by US authorities was increasing by the day. So Dilger and co. headed south for the Mexican border. He enters Mexico under the name of Dr. Delmar. I mean, it's not a very good cover name. It doesn't take a genius to figure out that Delmar and Delga sound pretty similar. You know, this random German guy shows up in Mexico. He's a doctor. Both have the same amount of letters. Both start with D. One's Dil, one's Del, Ger, and Ma. You don't have to be a genius to put two and two together. So here he meets up with Helken and Hinch, the rest of the bot and the rest of the Baltimore agents. However, their mission wasn't complete, and the group were still working at sabotaging the U.S. at the behest of Berlin and the War Department, even if they were in Mexico. So Dilger was trying to garner support for a Mexican invasion of the U.S. It sounds far-fetched, but then again, it was at a time where there was no border control and the likelihood of invading at least a small part of one of the southern states may have been possible. I don't think the Mexican government would have backed Dilger. I think he would have been swinging for the fence on that one. I don't think the Mexican government would have been stupid enough to attack the US at the behest of a German doctor. So Dilger had even gone as far to raise the startup funds to get the early stages of the, ca of the campaign off the ground. So he's a very determined guy. He wants to he wants this invasion to happen, whether this is just to save his own skin or maybe he does really care about Germany and he is working on behalf of the German government. However, things didn't go the Germans' way. Obviously, the war was drawing to a close, making any plan of invasion or German warfare sabotage completely and utterly pointless. Combine that with the infighting between the German agents Dilgar, Hench, and Helken. By this stage, Berlin had also intervened. They put a halt to any invasion plan and pretty much stopped Dilger's crusade of a US invasion by Mexico. After the war in January of 1918, Dilger was awarded the Iron Cross for his sabotage slash espionage work. Unfortunately for Dilger, he pissed a lot of people off, not just in the US, but also in Mexico and Germany. So he starts to feel the heat and suspects that the Americans or the British are coming for him, and rightfully so. He's caused enough damage in these countries and the Allies are coming to collect the check. So what is Dilgo to do? He heads to Spain to lay low. The others head for Argentina. There was apparently a lab in Argentina that had officially ended in 1918 due to it becoming very hard to transport live germs across various borders and also to keep the germs alive over long sea voyages, especially with a lot more American activity in the water. It was very hard to get down to South America. So Dilger is in Spain. The Germans had sent bioagents from Spain to Romania, making it a friendly port for the Germans. And Spain had always helped Germany in the past. Franco had helped Hitler in World War II after Germany helped them in the Spanish Civil War. Unfortunately for Dilger, he arrives in Madrid about the same time as Spanish influenza does. To talk about bad timing, ironically enough, Dilger contracts Spanish influenza and dies on the 17th of October, 1918. So, 
Dilger's entire life is based on ironies. What are the chances of a guy like Dilger who worked with germs on a daily basis that he made for years to use in war gets taken out by a new germ after the war had ended? He was only 34 years old. That was the official version of events reported more than likely by the German authorities. There's a few people who think that that story is complete bullshit and that he didn't die of Spanish influenza or die in Spain at all. There's a couple of theories surrounding his death, and one is that he may have been assassinated by the Allies or the Germans, maybe to cover up the secret biological weapons program. That would seem likely. He did know a lot, and he could have exposed Germany to a lot of criticism and trouble after the war. There probably also would have been sanctions, more sanctions put on Germany by the International Court. A lot of this information wasn't really reported on at the time and became known well after the war. A couple of the guys involved wrote books about their experience. So his brother Carl and Fred Herman questioned the official story, suspecting that he had been murdered by German agents, ironically by way of poison. Spanish influenza also provided the perfect cover. No one would have suspected foul playing during a pandemic. So it makes you wonder, has anyone been assassinated during COVID? Obviously, if it's natural causes, no one's going to be uh, looking into that too hard. If people die of COVID, well, you're not looking for a bullet in the back of the head, are you? It'd be very easy to assassinate someone during a pandemic because no one's looking for foul play. Everyone just assumes it's the virus that did them in. Carl and Fred were pretty convinced Anton's death was either a hit by the Allies due to his identity being blown or by the Germans. They were so convinced they testified to it at the Mixed Claims Commission in 1922. This is the court proceedings that took place after the war between the US and Germany. We'll get into that more in the next episode. The place of death was also called into question. Was he really killed slash died of flu in Madrid? Or was he either dumped there or was Madrid a convenient cover due to the flu outbreak? There are many different scenarios that could have played out. He could have been killed anywhere. There's not a lot of news reporting going on back then. He could have fallen off of a fucking ship, fallen out of a window, stabbed himself in the back, jumped off a roof, who knows? Could have been killed in Mexico, Argentina, the US, in Europe, in Germany. And there isn't really any official manifest of him entering Spain, I don't think. Me, personally, I think this was a hit. He had done his job and he knew way too much. When the war ended, he could have implicated a lot of important people in a very serious plot. And I do not think the US would have look too kindly on German high command. There could have been some drastic repercussions. Even today, there is a lot of mystery surrounding his death and, and no one's really sure how he died. No one really knows if anyone else from his team died in similar circumstances. In the end, the infecting of horses didn't have the desired results the Germans had hoped for. Around 8 million horses, mules and donkeys died during the war. 750,000 of which were transported from the US to European battlefields. Dilger and Germany's efforts didn't impact the war on the scale they had intended. Did the Germans really think this was going to work? Dilger killed thousands of horses using his germs, which is another irony of his life, given he loved horses and trained them when he was younger. It's even more ironic that his father was a Civil War hero and horse trainer. World War I was also the first large-scale coordinated attack of biological warfare in history. It's also the first time we've seen the mechanized and industrial slaughter of human beings and animals. 
And that concludes the epic tale of Anton Dilger and the Biological Warfare program of Germany in World War One. We'll pick this up in the next episode. That's the end of the show. I hope you all enjoyed it. In the next episode, we will continue our look at Biological Warfare and World War One, specifically the epic event I mentioned before. We'll also be having a look at a few more characters from World War One that tie everything together. So definitely look out for that one. Until then, thank you very much to everyone who listened. I hope you enjoyed the show. It's good to be back. The first episode of 2022. If you're enjoying The Truth Tank, there's a couple of things you can do. Share, rate, and subscribe to The Truth Tank. Join and follow the Facebook page for all the latest updates on the show and new episodes. Tell your family, tell your friends, tell people you meet, spread the word, help get it out there. Until then, I am a tank. This is the truth. May the truth be with you. Running.